Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Here we are with episode number 52 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome to episode number 52. 52. I can't believe we're already uh, at this point, um, but we've got a phenomenal guest today, and I am, uh, I'm ready to learn, so we are very excited to have Tony here, and uh, can't, wait to, can't wait to hear him share his knowledge with us. Absolutely. So uh, I came across Tony uh, through a strange kind of happenstance. Mike, if you remember, we were both on Dan Braun's podcast, Braun Body Podcast. Dan's a, a young PT yep. uh, that had us on our, I've been on the show a couple of times, Mike and I were both on and he does a great job and he did a kind of round table of shows uh, on baseball. And I did one of the shows on performance and he said, you need to connect with the, uh, the, the Abitini family. He said, I had, um, Michaela on who's a scout with and works with the Pittsburgh pirates. And then her dad, Tony is, is, does a whole nother thing. You just got to talk to him and find out. And so we jumped on the phone and instantly, uh, kind of hit it off and, you know, to give you a little backdrop, he's a, uh, mental skills coach and, and college professor who specializes in vision and its effect on performance. He's the author of the book beyond the ball, the visual and emotional habits of high performance. Very cool book. Uh, that I just finished a couple of weeks back. Uh, and he's a certified open focus coach. Uh, and his work is in the area of visual psychology. If you don't know what that is, that's that's fine. You're going to find out in a minute. Um, and he's been featured in Sports Illustrated, New York Times, USA Today, Newsweek, ESPN. He's consulted for several MLB teams, numerous college programs, including at, at the time of this recording, uh, the new national championship uh, LSU Tigers, which we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, and then the last five years, he's been a performance coach for USA women's Olympic softball team. He's a regular on speaking circuit in, in the US and internationally with presentations everywhere from Dubai to Italy, France, Germany, Holland, and Japan. But he's also the founder and director of performance at Frozen Ropes. It's a US-based US company that offers coaching support to amateur athletes, coaches, great facility here in Chester, New York, as well as around the country. And is also a national columnist for, for Baseball America, where he writes on uh, issues in player development. And Tony, that's a mouthful. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. Well, you know, when you get on the other side of 40 years old, your resume just inherently gets better because you, you, you've just made more mistakes than everyone else and you've had an opportunity to live life. But thank you. Looking forward to, to chatting. Um, we can, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, visual psychology and um, people still are trying to figure out what I do. Uh, you know, I have a law degree and, and many times the first thing people ask, what, what the heck is a former New York State prosecutor doing in the area of mental skills and vision? 
I'll go to lectures sometimes and people ask me if I have any eye drops or saline solution because they think I'm an eye doctor. Um, I, I do teach sports psychology, but quite frankly, I, I got bored doing it. Um, the late, great Ken Revisa, who was really the grandfather of mental skills, and I would sit around over coffee and even sometimes cocktails, and I would debate with him. And I would say, Ken, I, I think you're full of poops, this whole mental skill stuff. I said, athletes live, train, and play in the visual world. So wh why don't we start trying to help athletes by talking about the front of the face and, and knowing, quite frankly, that the eyes are part of the brain and the eyes are the window to the soul. So I, I just got tired of, well, mental skills, psychology, visual, so... When I started writing the book five, five or six years ago, I said, you know what, I'm going to create a, a term. And when I use it, sometimes people will ask me, Tony, where'd you get that from? <laughs> and my response is, well, I just made it up because <laughs> it, it sounded good. And, and it really is my attempt to integrate visual and, and the mental performance piece of this thing. And, and I think initially you know, this industry is, as you and Michael know, we live in silos. Everyone needs to stay in their lane. And I decided to maybe blow up the lanes a little bit and, and, and integrate the visual processing skills of the best of the best with the mental skills. So hence the term visual psychology was born. Cool. So, um, let's get into some of the meat and potatoes of the book and we'll see where, how far we get off the rails here. So um, the phrase <laughs> that you repeat often throughout the book is something that you got from when you were working with Manny Ramirez, you know, uh, Mike, you know him well from when he was up with the Sox as a Yankees fan, I despise him because he killed us all the time, but one of the best right-handed hitters in history. Uh, and he told you that when I look at nothing, I see everything. Explain what that means to an athlete. Well, that really is the premise of, of what I do. And when, when Manny first said that to me in 2005, I was in Red Sox spring training, working with all of the prospects who couldn't get out of double A. Their swings were great, but they couldn't recognize or hit a breaking ball. Or their chase rates were off the top or off the charts. Manny comes driving by in a golf cart and he, and he sees me playing with these rings and rods that later became very famous because Manny always wanted me to create new patterns for him. He waits for me to finish talking to the prospects and walks over to me, introduces himself and says, hi, I'm Manny. And I said, I know who you are. And he said, I, I have a few questions. I'd like to talk to you. About 20 minutes later, we started talking about uh, the, the background at Yankee Stadium, why the black at times for him um, was, was better than being at, uh, in, in Oakland Coliseum, how lefties and righties, how his visual search strategies would be different. And he started asking me questions as to, is that the right thing to do? And I kind of chuckled here, here was one of the best right-handed hitters in the game, you know, asking, you know, this mental skills vision wannabe guy back in the day, is that the right thing to do? And we started having a conversation about really the difference between an understanding focus. And we use that term, Eric, all the time. We need to focus harder, right? We need to focus on X, Y, and Z. And, and as Manny and I started talking, the classic term, which really enlightened me, was, Tony, I, I see the ball better when I look at nothing, I see everything. And it was, it was great to hear one of the best of the best say and understand the distinction between looking, which almost has a cognitive component to it, and simply pure seeing. 
And, and when Manny shared that with me back then, it led me to a gentleman named Dr. Les Femi. Dr. Les Femi is really the pioneer open focus, passed away recently. And, and Dr. Femi, who, who created this concept of open focus, this non-judgmental seeing, right? This understanding that space, the, the way in which we process space is one of the best ways to reduce anxiety and for the brain to better calculate time to collision and processing skills. So Manny never met Dr. Femi. Dr. Femi didn't even know who Manny Ramirez was, but, but here was two different worlds that for me collided when I realized that when Manny told me, when I look at nothing, I see everything, he was describing this open focus term that Dr. Femi for the last 30 years had introduced through his biofeedback school and helping reduce anxiety and started realizing that different brain waves, and, and we, we certainly know that the alpha waves are where guys are, quote, in the zone. And he realized that when you were, would ask the brain to really stay open and, and see versus look and spend more time with the space in between objects, this was open focus. And, and it was really what Manny was describing. He had his best moments when it was pure thought, right? Th there was no looking, you know, these days you watch major league hitters and, and they're hunting, they're seeing, there's so much information on their iPads and scouting reports that they're so in look mode they, that they had forgotten, in my opinion, to simply trust their eyes. And one of the reasons why Manny was one of the best, when he was in this open focus or seeing mode, he saw so many things even pre-ball flight that other hitters didn't see. And, clear, and clearly at the major league level, pitchers are giving up stuff. They're giving up pre-pitch cues whether it's an arm slot variation, whether it's a shoulder tilt, whether it's more flesh that's seen on the ball. Manny was so great because he was in C mode that he was able to see these things. So um, going on what you just talked about in terms of space and how we kind of measure space visually or, or what you call space riding in the book and yeah. how that syncs with our timing and our triggers and our kinematic sequencing and basic and rhythm and tempo, basically how we interpret something and then make that decision, not only uh, mentally, but physically and have our body follow in kind. And, and that really transcends not just hitting a baseball, but really anything in sports, right? To me, that's the Holy grail, Eric, right? And when people, you know, when I start talking about space, well, what is that? And, and what's really interesting, you know, for your listeners to understand, space is invisible to the eyes, but for the brain, it possesses so much information. Um, our, our, our neurologists have really educated me on, on, on how space is different for when we're outside, for example. And, and, and this is where I'm asked many times about virtual reality and, and a lot of the vision training games that are going on. And, and from my perspective, in, in listening to the neurologist, they're poo-pooing a lot of that. They're basically saying the brain is really, really smart, particularly the hippocampus. And it knows when it's in this three-dimensional space and when it's in this state of, of, of natural openness to an extent, it wants to learn. Um, when it's not, when it's a, a laptop, when it's some of the traditional vision training, or and even virtual reality, right? The brain says, you know what? You're trying to trick me. This space, it doesn't exist. I mean, think about, you know, some of the, and I, I, I've seen all of the vision training equipment that's out there. You know, one of the components working with LSU and Jay Johnson 
when he interviewed me, he had the 15 different things that were out there for vision training. And I had to go line by line explaining why not. But it always it always came back to the same premise. Um, you you can't understand and teach space and use space to be in a performance edge, right? When it's not true space. And again, it gets back to the brain's inherent desire to want to be outside and to understand the difference neurologically of artificial space that exists on a screen and the space that exists when we're outside and, and, and we're living. And I, I think that that's where, from a performance standpoint, outside is better. Um, the reason why I called my book Beyond the Ball is to get athletes to understand whether you're working on your pickoffs, whether it's working on working our first step quickness as an athlete from a running standpoint, to, to understand that the space between where you're where you are and where you're going has so much vital information for the brain to process. Um, I, I think that's that's where it becomes interesting. But initially, for, for athletes and trainers to understand the difference between fake space and 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 real space, and and understand that the body has a much better way of remembering information when the activity, the performance is in the actual three-dimensional space that you'll be performing in a game versus the one-dimensional, two-dimensional space that many times goes on in, in parentheses, vision training action. And so we're doing so, all these calculations like it, it's such an incredible you know, millisecond pace, you know, for that punt returner who's got to, you know, interpret the spin of the ball and the trajectory of the ball at the same time gauge, you know, and then there's even calculations that we didn't even know in terms of, you know, that I'm now learning about like tau and how we recognize, okay, am I going to be able to get to the edge before that guy? And do, do I have my abilities match up with those sorts of things? So, you know, all of this is happening at a very reflexive level, right? Well, truly it is. And I think where the industry has gotten slightly in, in, in a rat hole is thinking that cognitively we're going to be able to make these estimates of time to collision. That, that's really what it comes down to when you talk about the pun returner tr trying to intersect a 95 mile an hour fastball or a hockey goaltender, right, trying to deflect or stop a puck coming at 100 miles an hour, right? The, the, the eyes are not equipped to, to travel at that speed. All, all the research tells us that uh, I was looking at numbers the other day, somebody asked, right? Our eyes cannot physically move at the speed that they're seeing. So in a sense, we're, the athletes that we're working with are, are simply guessing. They're, they're taking information, right? And estimating time to collision. And so much of that information, Eric, is in the space that sits prior to or after the stimulus. I don't know anything about NFL quarterbacks, but in talking to an NFL quarterback, um, you know, we started talking about space and why is it that Tom Brady, for example, just sees things better in the secondary. And he actually read the book. He said, Tony, you know what? I, I don't think anybody had to tell him, but Tom Brady just stays in open focus when he's got those blitzing linebackers coming in. It's not about the receivers. It's a, it's all about the space that exists between the receiver and the defensive back to an extent. And, and that is trainable. I, I think the first thing is just getting athletes to understand it, it, it's not the primary objects that are out there. There's so much more information that eventually once the game kicks up, right, with, with this space, you know, that that this anticipatory space that exists 
for that for them to under not only understand but to realize that that's where more cues are not actually the stimulus itself particularly a ball it's not about the ball you try to tell athletes stop looking at the ball and their first reaction is well what the hell am i supposed to look at well, the field of vision that we live in, right, is extremely complicated and you can adjust it. You can actually, in this little box that I have here, you can have the ball sitting up here. What Manny and the best eyes in the game do is they position the ball up top, but they're, they're so enamored with and curious about the ensuing space that comes in front of it. That's where they're picking up all this information. And that's trainable. That's not something that, you know, the, the, the gods of training have given anyone. So question for you as a little bit of a follow-up and you, you had talked about neurology, uh, you know, a little bit earlier. So, um, you know, you're, you're, we're talking about, you know, all of this visual psychology, but question I have for you is, you know, how do we prepare an athlete in a way that when they get exposed to this type of training, that it's an optimal environment, right? That we have fertile soil for those individuals to, to learn and to grasp the techniques. Because I imagine if they're amped up and they're overstimulated and they're fired up, it's probably not going to be the best neurological state from a sympathetic and parasympathetic standpoint where they're going to be able to acquire skill and pay attention because they may be too hyper-focused and too amped up. So, um, and, and you may cover this in a little bit, but you know, how important is going into those sessions, um, you know, relaxed, you know, dialed in kind of what, what do you like to see from the athletes when they are going to these training sessions? There are, there are certain things that you want to focus on. Michael, great question. And, you know, we, we all chase the, we need to get athletes to relax. Right. And, and that's just a big word. It, it, it's like the overused word of focus. Are we talking about muscular relaxation are we talking about emotional relaxation are we talking about visual relaxation from my perspective i truly think that you can address the lack of physical relaxation and 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 the emotional relaxation by the eyes and and for in, in that situation to get an athlete to just sit simply sit there quietly and and yes meditation is extremely important we understand that the quieter we are con cognitively we have better intuition. This is all about looking for, um, you know, staying in the presence. But but here's the thing that really dawned on me, and and all of my meditation friends, they're, they're always talking about, we, we need to find the zone and we need to be in the present. Well, I found it. It's space, because if you ask the brain to, to truly make the space that that sits around us, how much more present can you be? when the, the when when you're when, when you when you have this focus point and and you're simply not allowing the the fine focus or or the narrow level of attention that goes on with athletes right and, and again as you and i are sitting here it's difficult to do we're both on a screen but you know one of the open focus training techniques that i use it's a walkthrough can you imagine Michael, right now, the space between you and I, if we were sitting here together, could you imagine the space night right now between your head and the ceiling that sits there without even looking at it? And the, one of the things that Dr. Femi really understood was it wasn't a question of looking for the space. The fact that you asked the brain at that point to go look for space, it was the most calming thing that, that all of his EEG readings came. He tried everything, but as soon as he had thousands of athletes and, and anxiety-ridden patients, once, once 
imagining space wherever they were all of a sudden the needles came down so to me in, in that situation you sit there and talk to someone preferably outside you know one of the one of the, the first slides that i'll use whether it's with lsu or the colorado rockies or the boston red sox living training and playing in the visual world so if i'm working with baseball players we need to be outside particularly because light is really the language of the eyes right that's the way in which the eyes interpret any kind of stimulus and once we're outside i walk them through hey let's sit here can you imagine the space between your two ankles right now and they'll kind of sit there and can you imagine the space between you and that tree that's 200 feet away? N now asking the brain to make that a priority, right? All the research, according to Dr. Femi and other people that have studied this says, wow, okay, anxiety is going down. So now we're, we're, we're teaching you how to visually relax, which I believe is the best way to address the physical relaxation and some of the emotional clutter that goes on also. I don't know if that answered your question. No, no, it does. And, and I know that this is a, a very complex topic. And I know, you know, when I said relax, you're right. There are so many different ways to relax and, and several different components. But, um, you know, and, and you did answer my question. And, um, you know, it, it's to me, it just sounds like, um, you know, creating the right environment and asking the right questions. And obviously building the rapport is, is, is kind of the first step. And then I'm sure you can add on as you go from there, but uh, you look, I, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to learn a lot more about this because I'm already incredibly fascinated by what you just said. So I've got 9,000 questions, but I won't ask them because we got to stick to the script. Well, but, here, um, and, and Michael, and here's the thing though, to, to, to really put an asterisk on that. And, and I, I see there's some great teachers, great information out there. To me, the master teacher has to understand the concept first. And then as I tell some of the people that, that talk to me, you need to be able to present it in a way in which the, the stupidest kid on the team can understand it, okay? And then you've got to build some cues around it, right? In, in, in my line of work, you know, initially I get pounded by the neurologist, the school mental skills, the kinesiologist. So I have to give them the science behind it, which is truly important. And the problem today, in my opinion, there's so much pseudoscience that's out there. Right. You, you quote a Ph.D., somebody with a bunch of initials says, here's a clinical study that's being done. Well, you can find a clinical study or any 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 information or research that that isn't accurate, but it sounds good. And in the world of, you know, fake news, if you will, I'm constantly asked about, well, Tony, but this was a report done out of the University of Michigan. And they said this. Well, if you read it and you really drill down. Right. It wasn't peer reviewed, number one. Right. It, it was a bunch of grad students that took nine, nine hockey players and, and, and did some testing with them. And they come up with this conclusion, which now justifies a, a well-intended coach's objective. So, so to me, you know, you, you've got to be able to, I got, I, I, I understand the concepts to me, it's concepts, cues, connections. It's, I call it C3 that the master teachers can take a concept that really, Man, Tony, what do you mean space, right? You know, I'm not going to talk about scan paths and directional selectivity and the hippocampus or the visual cortex and, and what that means to, to an athlete. They don't care. Most of the athletes that I want, just give me the goddamn fix. Give me the cue, okay? And to your point about connection. But, but to some, and this is where you have to know your audience as a trainer, 
some want to go underneath the hood and, and they want to talk about two-dimensional versus three-dimensional space. But for the others, right, you need to come up and build cues that they can understand that really reinforce the concepts and then you're connecting. The, the third C, the, the, the connecting is the aha moment when that player can take that information and now own it and start doing it when the trainer's not there anymore. Yeah, so I'm just going to quit my job at this point and just start digging holes because uh, this is uh, this is above my pay grade. But um, honestly, so you know, kind of changing gears a little bit, right? So an athlete's expression of speed, power, and reactivity is dependent on their ability to recognize and process patterns they're seeing at game speed and competition. So how do athletes simulate this skill and development in a team setting? They don't Do use technology to help with that. No, no they don't. Stop using technology. Stop thinking that you're going to trick the brain into thinking that that these non these one dimensional lack of real space the, the, the neurons in which the brain processes information is extremely unique. It's like a footprint, and and we have no idea how intelligent the brain is. It's almost like a firewall as to that's not real. And, and this, this dates way back to the fight or flight syndrome that's going on, okay? And the brain's ability to want to conserve energy. The brain is in a constant state of, I don't want to waste time with bullshit, okay? I, I, need, to, I need to be able to figure out, okay, you got a, a, a beast coming in from the right side. Do I go and attack it or do I go and run away? So from a technical training standpoint, in my opinion, you, you can have all of the toys that are out there. And I'm not, I, I don't want to be so pessimistic, Michael, but it's the rule of transfer, right? There's so much great research coming out of Columbia University, Dr. Greg Wolpert, right? I sat with him for three days and I felt like the biggest dumbass going, right? And I, and I have a better understanding of neuroscience than most. And three days, he finally said, Tony, what I'm trying to tell you is the following concept of contextual inference, right? Learning is truly mastered and you're able to use learning if it's in the context in which you train and if you can stay with that premise that applies to so many different things but in in his situation and i asked him i asked him about the vision training and whatnot he said right you'll get better at the video game you'll get better at some of the testing that's going on but when it's time for the brain and the eyes to eventually go back into its natural landscape right in three-dimensional space, right? All the research seems to suggest that the hippocampus, which, which is kind of the learning memory where we're encoding this information, it's saying, no, I didn't learn that in the same context that I did that you're asking me to recall it now. So before we go deeper down the rabbit hole, I wanna make sure I'm grabbing the, the, the concept well. And so I'm thinking of some other things that I've grasped along the way, as well as some things you said earlier today in terms of Tom Brady reading a defense or um, any of those situations or Mike as a lacrosse coach and being able to read the field as I'm running down the, you know, with a stick in my hand and looking for an, an, a, either an open pass or a defender or shot. <clears throat> so I, I know at some point they did some research where they took average good and master chess players. And basically they flashed a screen of a chess situation uh, uh, for a couple seconds and then said, okay, now here's a board, recreate what you just saw. 
and the average did it at maybe a 50% accuracy. And I'm guessing these numbers, the good did it at maybe, you know, 60 or 70% and the great were able to do it at a very high accuracy. But then when they took the board and they gave a situation that would not actually show up in a real game of chess, it evened it all out. So is it that the people who are really good at this have a really good ability to recognize patterns that they would actually see in a game, in a real life situation? Well, and hearing that for the first time, Eric, I would say the following, and here's a question I'll throw back to you. Were those chess pieces moving? No. Okay. It was just a scenario of here's this, here's the setup of a situation in mid game. Okay. Now here's a snapshot of it. Now take that and try to recreate that. Can you recognize a pattern? I think I think recognizing static patterns, as you just described, I, I think that's whether it's being real good at, at visualization or imagery or, or, or just being able to very quickly encode that information. And I think that comes from years of experience of looking at a chessboard. But but I would just pull back on, you know, when, when you talk about the athletes that you and I work with, right, there's movement. OK, the whether it's the ball, the hockey puck, the lacrosse stick that stimulus, that object, uh, to really understand and, and be accurate with it, it's in a constant state of, of, of movement. There's a dynamic component to it. So the chess players that, that are looking at these non-moving objects, I don't really think that they need to be able to understand, quantify, and assess space as compared to, which would be impossible, the chess pieces were moving, right? Then their brain would be in hyperdrive and okay, I really have to be enamored and be much more aware of, of space and, and get my field of vision, get my get my world to not be so enamored with, with the primary move. It's all about the next move. So I, 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 I wouldn't have had to answer that. I, I, I think that, okay, great. But, but I, I would pull back and say, how do you now take that to an athlete who has to deal with a moving target coming at him or her. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. This stuff does get super complex, and you do an artful job of using a lot of acronyms in the book to cue certain behaviors or thought processes with your athletes, such as WTF, and not the one you're thinking of, SEED, uh, S-E-E-D, <laughs> ACT, FOMO, WMD. Explain why that's helpful for athletes in implementing these processes and, and, and what are some of those things you actually mean? Well, I think it really came back to the question Michael had asked and, and I tried as best as I could to explain it. Um, language that makes sense. I, I think, you know, pr probably because of my law school background and, and being able to, to condense language. We, we live in a society now, Eric, that people don't read a lot, right? We're, we're a scroll away from being bored and I work with a tremendous amount of teenagers or whatnot. And if I don't make it fun, cute, and interesting and short, then I can remember it, right? So you, you look at the WTF rule in life, um, you know, do you work the fix or do you wallow in the fog? 
And that's kind of a mindset. And, and you really want athletes and people to understand that, that when you're getting your teeth bashed in or you're at a crossroad in the situation, we as human beings have choices, right? And the choice is we, we can work the fix, right? We can, we can avoid playing the woe with me and look for sympathy, or, or we can choose because it is a choice right, to be in the working the fix mode. And sometimes we have to explain to athletes what wallowing, wallowing in the fog is, right? The blame game, poor me, blaming the umpire, the excuses, my athletic trainer sucks, he doesn't, doesn't know what he's doing, that's why I'm not running. It, it's really our way of, of getting athletes to take responsibility for, for what they're doing. Um, I, I think some of the other ones, and my book is filled with them because that book, and it's kind of interesting, people ask, well, who actually reads that book? Uh, you've had neuroscientists read the book. You've had super intelligent people like you read the book. But that book is basically for, you know who? Kids in high school, junior high school, uh, children on uh, on medication. I spent a lot of time um, with children that were trying to holistically get off of ADHD medication by in introducing them to space. Because Dr. Femi initially, when he started this thing, not Manny, right? This was all about trying to reduce anxiety to people. So using those acronyms, they're catchy. Um, I actually have my FOPO bracelet on, right? Which is one of the classic ones. Forgive others, pray often, face our personal obstacles. Forget other people's opinion. If you happen to be adult, you can replace forget with rhymes like duck. Um, people remember that, they're catchy, it's cute. <laughs> um, and it, it really addresses more on the more on the mental side of it, you know. And you know, on a side note, man, everybody's a life coach now. Do you notice how many like mental skills life coaches are out there? Anybody who's had trauma, adversity, former alcoholics, are all life coaches, and they're talking about all the things that they did, which I think are great. I think the problem is it's such a crowded space now, right? I see it all the time with with the mental skills coaches. And, and, and they're, they're so good at understanding the difference between ACT and CBT and, and Ken Revisa because he was my age, right? We understand about process and results and breathing and visualization and goal setting. And I look at this and say, okay, great. Okay, can we stop with the Hallmark cards, okay? And these cliches, and can we get back into the real world? And athletes live, play and train in the visual world. So why don't we start talking about this part of the brain, not the back of the brain. And so, yeah, the acronyms um, ha have made it very simple um, for, for people to understand that. We're constantly telling people to Debbie up. I, I coached a softball game many years ago and someone said, Tony, how come all the girls on the team are called Debbie? No, you dumbass. That, that, that's not their names. Debbie stands for taking a deep, exaggerated breath. And everybody knows the importance of taking a breath, Eric. The problem is, the breath has three-part component to it. There's an inhale, there's a hold, there's a pause, and there's an exhale. And really, quite frankly, depending upon the activity, for example, I have a son that wants to get faster, that hopefully you're helping, right? I don't need my son right before he's getting ready to steal a base to take a deep, exaggerated breath. I need to fire up those, I need to, I need to fire him up. <laughs> I need to give him something else to activate those neurons to say it's almost time to fast twitch compared to starting meditation or relaxation or a pre-pitch routine for a pitcher where you can go deep and exaggerated or whatnot. So yeah, Debbie up depending upon the activity and what you're trying to get the body to do is one of our also favorite acronyms.
Well, it's funny because we were just talking about this the other day, and and um, and as Tony mentioned, he has a, a son who's going in the MLB draft league that um, I'm working on some stuff with, and and we were talking about how we leverage breath, and and Tony's one of the few people that talked about how you leverage breath, not just in you know, in that, Hey, I need to calm down between innings or Hey, before a game or after a game, I want to go and meditate and, and do deep breaths. But how do I actually use that in game? Because you can even within, within the delivery of a pitch, I coach pitchers to use both ends of that spectrum. So like there's, there's the, the end of the spectrum where I need to settle myself, get parasympathetic, get into my alpha state where I can focus and, and kind of get feel. And then I immediately have to turn over and become really violent very quickly. So that's two totally different ends of the breath spectrum. And you need to be able to learn how to leverage them. And really from mental states, talk about that ability to, to get on off really quickly. The ability that I'm going to be for this next few seconds or fractions of seconds, I'm going to be extremely violent and explosive. And then I have to be able to settle, regroup, get my thoughts clear, so now I can be able to do it again in however much time, depending on the sport. Well, you said it better than I. I, I can't touch that. I'll just simply add, and, and I use this at a presentation. You mentioned LSU baseball. I'm, at, I'm, in, I'm in Baton Rouge in November, and I'm sitting there with Jay Johnson and, and the best team in college baseball. And I said, all right, guys, I'm going to teach you how to breathe through your eyes. Okay, and if you remember that line, that line was used, uh, Susan Sarandon, and Kevin Costner, what movie was that? Now you lost me, Mike. You're going to have to save us on this it, one. It, it, it'll come to me, okay? But, but So they're looking at me saying, Tony, how can we possibly breathe through our eyes? I said, well, you can't. I said, but the fact that you're trying, okay, you've now sent a message to the, to the brain to say, we're going to, we're going to make our eyes the most important things. And you can actually, we, we spend some time getting them to inhale, just take a, a nice inhalation and actually visualize smoke and the vapor coming out of their eyes on the exhalation. And, and it was, it was an interesting, and I've used this over and over again to just make seeing the ball, the priority. When you ask somebody to just inhale Okay, and you're actually getting them and hoping that they actually bug their eyes up like the deer in the headlights, which we don't want to be tracking a moving object with. But on the exhalation, all of a sudden now, right, we're about 40 to 50 degrees above the horizon, which all the eye doctors are telling us is the best way to sweep and scan and see moving objects. So, yeah, the, the breath in conjunction with body movement is a tremendous way, no matter what activity, to really get guys to understand the effect that the breath has in whatever they might be doing. And in my situation, the breath was used simply to get them to stop thinking, right? And Jay Johnson uses the, the line all the time. He wrote it in the book, fix your eyes first, the rest of the body will follow. And, and if you think about that really in any sport, right? The, the eyes lead the body, the body shouldn't be leading the eyes and, and what and how you're paying attention has so such a residual effect on what the body is going to do next. So let me ask you this. So I was, you know, thinking about breath and thinking about obviously how we, we know that breath is, is basically the only autonomic function that we can actively control as we get a little bit older. So the question I have for you is, um, you were talking about sort of, uh, you know, tension and relaxation and being able to sort of get amped up when you need to, and to sort of chill out when you need to. And 
you know, one of the things that I noticed with elite athletes too, and, and the best of the best, I'm talking, the, the, you know, I use Michael Jordan and Allen Iverson as an example of a crossover. And if you watch them do a crossover, they almost, as they come up and start to do it, they almost lull you to sleep a little bit. They almost come off, they just come off nice and easy. And all of a sudden it's like, wham, and they just cut you hard. And they, they almost, they get you to the point where they can almost catch you off guard a little bit, but their ability to go from tension to, uh, from relaxation to tension back, back to relaxation is just it's absolutely bananas because I see these guys and they're so efficient with their movement and with their skill and, and, and the amount of time it, it has to take to get to that point where you can switch on and off because it is a skill, but not get to the point where you're going to be all tension. Cause if you're all tension, you're screwed. And if you're all relaxation, you're screwed. So it's, it's such an amazing skill. Um, are you familiar with the work of Bud Winter? I'm not Michael. No. No. So Bud Winter, um, he was a, a track and field coach um, and he worked with a lot of elite athletes and he integrated, uh, he introduced a lot of breathing strategies to these track and field athletes. And uh, you know, we know like sprinting, you shouldn't be holding your breath and you shouldn't have this sort of red face when you're sprinting. Right. But what he did is he actually got to the point where he was working with uh, snipers and he was working with uh, the military because these guys uh, they were staying up all hours of the night and uh, you know, they were shooting each other with friendly fire because they didn't know how to relax. So he taught them via breathing strategies, how to get to the point where they could fall asleep within a couple minutes and how to be able to actually like maneuver and manipulate their nervous system and their brain. And it was, it is really remarkable. And, uh, you know, I just look at, you know, the ability to do stuff like this, man, it's, uh, it's absolutely bananas. And, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that this is not new stuff at all. It seems to me people are, have been doing this for quite some time, but like you said, there's so much pseudoscience behind it. How do we how do we wade through the BS? Like, how do we wade through the dog shit that comes oh. down the the pipe? You know, that, that's a great question. I, I battle that uh, all the time, you know, and I've worked for 13 different major league teams, right? And, and it, it always amazes me. Um, I applied for three entry-level positions last year with major league baseball teams. I didn't get an interview. I didn't get an interview. Okay. I had a 27 year old who just graduated, had to call me up and apologize to say, Tony, can I have your autograph? But we're, we're not going to interview for this low paying job because you don't fit into a silo because in, in, in upper levels, you have vision, you've got mental skills, you've got the life coaches, you've got the orthopedic surgeons and, and, and never the four shall meet. That's why private sector, the world in which you live in and I live in and Eric lives in, we get to pick what silo we get to go in any day. That, that's why there's so much better information coming out in private sector, right? That there's not the, this, the, these walls that go on there to an extent. Um, and you're right. I, I, I spent a lot of time up at West Point working with the Army baseball and softball team, right? To, to your point. And they, they're fascinated with open focus because as I start talking about anticipation and space, you're like, Tony, yeah, we see the clay bird when we're practicing. It's not about the clay bird. It's about the space in front of it. So at a very early age, they're learning to shoot, right? The name of my book was Beyond the Ball. They could write a book called Beyond the Clay, okay? Because they are so good at processing and having their field of vision expand because it's all about, since it's a moving target, estimating time to collision is not about primary it's about secondary where that movement is going to be. But yeah, this is information that's been out there for the longest time. And, and it, it amazes me, Michael, 
it, and I probably wouldn't have a job if if colleges and professional teams had a little less ego and and did a little bit of more integrative silos to, to an extent, but it, it just doesn't happen. And especially on the mental skills, because if you think about this discussion we're having right now, we've entered the mental skills world, clearly, right? We have an understanding of vision and, and what that means. And there's even been a, a talk about movements and sequencing and whatnot. Well, guess what? You don't, you can't go to a, a major college or a major league team and wander into those three. They will smack you down in a hurry. They will say, you stay in your world, Tony, you stay in your box and Eric, you stay in your box. And I think that's where it, it, it's frustrating for me to an extent. Uh, that's why most of my work now comes from players directly, agents. Um, you got to get to the decision maker. You know, when, when you get to the head coach of a team that won a national championship, you get to have a, a real adult conversation and not worrying about being politically correct or offending the mental skill coaches or the kinesiologist or the eye doctor. And then once you lay out and say, look, this is about results, because at the end of the day, right, you get paid, Eric gets paid and I get paid for results. OK, and, and the ability to have different menus to be able to go back and forth is, is where I think best practice comes from. And that's just not the landscape, unfortunately, with a lot of bigger organizations. I'm going to jump in real quick, Mike, before you get to your last question. And, and I think part of the problem is you talk about silos, Tony, and I think even the the siloization, I just made up a word, Mike, you like that? The like siloization of the, of the body Right. And where in, in our industry, we look at parts and even from the outside, I get coaches that say, oh, he has a weak core. He has tight hips. He has in these these pseudo scouting reports that they'll give me. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And because we get wrapped up in looking at that and then how do we if we look at parts and we try to add, well, what exercises or drills do I do for those parts, whether it's on the skill side or performance side, instead of stepping back and looking at behaviors and habits, you know, cause as we're talking about all this, you know, Mike, you're talking about like, look at the behaviors and habits of some of the best in the world and what are commonalities. And, you know, Barry Sanders used to fall asleep on the bench in the middle of games, right? The, arguably the greatest running back ever right. that ability to, to get on and off, you know, it seems so uh, common sense, but as, as they say, common sense is not unfortunately all that common is that looking at these behaviors and then how do we train and reinforce these behaviors if we truly want to make athletes better? Well, you mentioned Barry Sanders, Michael mentioned, um, Michael Jordan's the, the ability to go from neutral to fire, right? And, and I'll use baseball as an example, the ability to stay what I call visually neutral. We, we have these I call them these hot circuits that if they get hit, you're going to fire too early. And if you do that on a curveball that that breaks outside the strike zone, this is why major league hitters struggle to an extent. So the ability to identify some of these thresholds and these hot circuits and, and, and to be able to get them to understand that in training, right, learning to stay neutral longer. OK, which really gets back to as a baseline teaching physical relaxation. OK, if, if you can get those muscles to stay neutral a little bit longer, both in the breath, in, 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 in my opinion, getting them get, getting that athlete to be in better space at the right time. You know, you talk about the Jordans and the Barry Sanders. Those guys had visual search strategies that were very different from everyone else. 
Michael Jordan was calculating where people were way before anybody else, because like a Tom Brady, in my opinion, he saw things differently, right? He bought into, it's not about where those defenders are. It's about all this incredible space that everybody walks into. So I I think you're right. It's about profiling what the best of the best eyes do. And I, I really, I talk about that in my book about, you know, what do the best eyes in the game do? And the recurring theme, Eric Michael, always comes back to, right, just talking to Manny, right? Manny's talking about, he's talking about things that no one else saw in a game. Well, he he was able to see what Mariana Rivera was doing or possibly getting ready to throw the cut fastball, right? Because his visual system was picking up all this intel as compared to other guys that are going up here that are focused on the ball, that are laser locked in. Right, that that have this narrow focus, which not only affects your visual field, but increases physical and muscular tension. Right, you you, you want to get the body to relax, start with the eyes. Right, there's a good there's a reason why we feel really good sitting at on a beach watching sunsets or mountains or oceans. Why do we feel so good that way? Is it is that a is that a physical issue? No, the initial information coming in from the eyes. Is, is sending a, a much needed state of relaxation to the body, both physically and mentally. And if that's true, as athletes, as trainers, we've got to spend more time on the front part of this thing. I think that's really my message. And, and it's fascinated that the problem is, unlike all these other sciences, Eric, we know what a great swing looks like, right? You guys can look at video and, and really break down what, what the stride and the sprinting characteristics are of a runner. Well, how do you figure out what the visual search strategies are of the rich and famous? It's invisible. That's why this is such a, a fascinating, yet at the same time, it's like, Tony, what do you mean space? Show me show me the data, show me the measurables, show me the, the video clippings of that. Well, we can't get into Manny or Barry Bonds or Barry Sanders or Michael Jordan's head and see how the, that information was being processed. But what I do know, after spending 20 years doing this thing, they were doing something differently. And I'm convinced that they were so enamored with space, right? They understood what space was. They were just very good at at their calculations because whether they were trained that way or quite frankly, they were wired that way out of birth that they just understood that the space and, and, and how it affected movement and how it affected their ability to go from no to fire they were really good at that. And I think as trainers, as we're all looking for the Holy Grail, I, I think we need to spend more time on, on this topic than the, the, the seeable, right? I, this is the invisible piece that most people shy away from. But I'm telling you in baseball, the reason why you don't make it to the major leagues has nothing to do with your swing, particularly hitting, right? That information in that one quarter of a second isn't as good as the best of the best. That's not eyesight. That's not swing pattern, right? That's not core strength, right? That, that's just, guess what? You didn't estimate time to collision as well as the other guy. And I'm convinced, in my opinion anyway, it, it's about just bad spacing, right? Their field of vision wasn't very good and they got too stuck on the ball because most hitters that I talk to that are struggling, what do you think the hitting coaches are telling them? Find the ball. See the ball. Focus, See the ball. The ball. Focus on the ball. Wrong. Don't focus on the ball. You're not in Little League. You're not playing T-ball. 
you're 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 trying to track a 95 mile an hour missile coming out the same way the the, the sniper students at West Point. It's not about the clay bird, right? It's about the information and where that ball is going to. And we all know that, right, from a commonsensical standpoint, but you need to talk about it. You need to have concepts, you need to have cues. And eventually they start understanding that every time that they see a moving object, right, you broaden their awareness. Didn't mean to yell. Love it. <laughs> no, no, this is uh, this is very fascinating stuff. So, so you also leverage meditation um, and visualization in a pretty unique way. Um, can you tell us uh, the role of these tools and and how athletes can use them the most efficient way? Well, um, meditation. I didn't invent meditation, Michael. I'm just going to be the first one to put that disclaimer on. The Tibetan monks have been doing this for thousands of years, you know, and. And there's so many different levels of meditation. My friend, Alan Jager, who I spent a lot of time with out in the West Coast, he's he, he's one of the best guys to explain and understand the different levels of meditation, when it's when to use it, when how to use it. I think that the, the one twist that, that I put on it, um, and, and I, I meditate every morning, more traditional meditation, right? I understand the connection of the breath, right? My ability to stay quiet and, and, and really letting the subconscious take over my world to an extent. But what I found fascinating uh, with, with athletes, and I said this jokingly one day to a mental skills coach that thought that meditation was everything. That was the cure-all. And, and I said to her, well, eventually in the game, their eyes are open. They're like, yeah, well, you know, the, the meditative state will eventually transfer over. I said, well, what about if we taught meditation with eyes open? And there, there, there is a level of meditation, right? A little bit more advanced where you can learn and you can be in a meditative state with your eyes open. And as I started realizing that, and some of my work with athletes is teaching them how to initially, traditionally close your eyes, meditate, count backwards from a hundred to one, right? Whether you're going to be in the more traditional phase pose. But then I realized, boy, at some point, they got to have their eyes open. And what I realized was that open eyes meditation was open focus. I stumbled back into it again. It was like, okay, it's about the breath, right? Next time that you meditate, Michael, or just simply try it, just simply sit there, right? Inhale and, and, and actually fill your eyes with a breath. And then just simply exhale through your eyes and just simply go back and forth in, in, in that rhythm. And, and why I like open eyes med med meditation better, easier to pull and transfer that back into a game. I, I think I think that's where so many athletes will ask me, well, Tony, I meditate 20 minutes a day. It's not helping me hit a curveball. And, and yes, we understand visualization. Every athlete that I've talked to that probably you and Eric have shared time with, right? Meditation, really uh, visualization, really understanding what that is. What's the difference between visualization and imagery? When do you do it? But, but certainly in your mind's eye, your ability to create pictures, right? Those same neuronal pathways that are, that are being fired, if that picture is clear and done in real speed and time, is no different than the physical act. We know that makes sense. So that, that's a, 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 a major cue. I'll use that in the on-deck circle or even in the middle of an at-bat. Close your eyes for a split second. And in, in that blackened moment where the eyes are closed, you might be able to retrieve very quickly one of those images that you practiced on. So I think that that's where the mental skill stuff is so good. 
right? I, I think th what they have been doing for years is a baseline. I, I just wish they would take the meditation and the visualization and now let's go get to reality. We've got to process information in real time. We played most games with our eyes open and, and meditation and visualization in and of itself, it'll make you feel better. It'll clean up some of the lifestyle habit problems that some of us have, but I'm not so convinced that in and of itself is going to go and make you good to great for an elite athlete. I think that's the disconnect, that it's not enough. Well, I think there's a, just a general disconnect from is, has been the theme of, of all of this. And I think that there's so much that we're leaving on the table when we, you know, the, the thing I keep going back to in my world selfishly is if your speed training never goes beyond the ladder and I'm going to do this pre-sequence, you know, choreographed routine um, that is not going to transfer to the field to the way you think it is and being able to get all these different elements of skill of uh, of performance and then take that and then be able to actually package it together in a way that it can actually be transferable and usable is, is I think a whole nother level that a lot of people are not talking about. So, well, Eric, you hit it on the button, the rule of transfer in, in your world, in my world, I look at hitting drills, pitching drills, and, and, and you try to get coaches to say, when you start isolating, segregating pieces, and movement patterns, you're not going to get Humpty Dumpty back together again. You're getting better at the drill itself, right? It's like hitting off a tee. Hitting off a tee is the most ludicrous thing that I've ever seen, which is one of the reasons why most really good hitters are being developed, not in this country. There's not a lot of tees in Panama and Latin America and the DR. You know what they're doing? They're throwing balls up in the air with real movement and hitting them with sugar canes or sticks compared to the Americanization of what we do, right? With T-ball and, and the overemphasis of drills. People ask me all the time, what's the best hitting drill? Tony, you developed two unbelievable athletes. Your daughter played at North Carolina, Maryland. She was on the Olympic team for Team Italy. Your son played at Division One, playing at the MLB Draft League. G give us the secret sauce for the hitting drills. You know what I tell them, Eric? Um, no, we just went outside and played. I threw balls at them and they learned at a very early age that hitting is all about saying yes or no, right? Uh, unlike in Little League now, for example, everybody throws a ball right down the middle of a plate, right? It's called a mommy ball, a mistake over the middle. Well, in a real game, in seven pitches, you're probably going to get two for a strike. So at a very early age, if you want to teach really good visual skills for baseball and softball players, don't throw them strikes, and start getting the brain to go into a yes or no mode, not what is it or what the spin looks like. I think that that's been the challenge, but yeah, the rule of transfer, most of the drills that I see on, 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 on YouTube or the internet, it's garbage. People are buying it. There's a pseudoscience. Tony, did you see that drill in Iowa where they're, they're doing, just because they have a website or a Twitter feed doesn't make it real. <laughs> So yeah, the, the rule of transfer so exists in, in baseball, softball, certainly in your world. And it really gets back to common sense. Th does that training regimen look like the real thing? You, if, if you start with that, so many of the ladders and the cones and the, some of the silly drills <laughs> that I see, Eric, and I'm not an expert like you and Michael, I'm like, great. So we, we got these kids running on these ladders and cones. And the little that I know about your world, 
stride length is really important. Okay, you, you'll get to the base faster. So why are we spending all this time with these little pitter patterns, right? Where we're actually increasing, right? Smaller steps and we're never getting good knee drive up because they're constantly in this paddle mode. And then you take the ladders away. And, and when you say run forest run, they can't run anymore because you've screwed it up. But the drill itself has been very good. So yeah, the, the transference issue, I, I wish coaches and trainers would really step back and say, am, am I doing this to simply charge money and to fill up an hour of a training session? Or do, am I really concerned when the lights go on that what we're talking about is going to show up in a game? Yeah. And in our world, you it's know, arguments all day on Twitter of what's the best way to strengthen the glutes when we have to step back and say, well, does it even matter? Right. right. You know, because even if you have the strongest glutes, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best on the field, you know, and, and I've seen it first. It's why I took a lot of the record boards out of my high schools because the best squatters and benchers and deadlifters weren't always the best players. And so, mm. you know, the, there's an expression, Zach Evanesh is a, is a strength coach we're going to have on the show at some point. And he, he has a great expression. He calls it being strong and useless, right? Uh, it, it's, it's basically not having any transfer whatsoever, but Mike, I, I, you want to jump with one last question before we wrap it up. Yeah, you know, I think the one thing that um, I've seen with with a lot of sports coaches when we we talk about skill acquisition is um, they don't understand the different types of practice and how to integrate the different types of practice at the appropriate time. So, um, you know, looking at like block learning, serial learning, and random learning, right? Um, you know, I see this all the time. Like in the world of lacrosse, you know, I work with a lot of kids, and um, you know, kids use their rebounder and they play wall ball. And it's like really, really cool, right? It's a great way to learn how to catch and throw. But in the game, you don't stand in the same spot at the same distance and just play catch. So I asked all these people, I said, look, do you want it, Do you want your kid to get better at wall ball or do you want them to get better at lacrosse? Because if you want to get them better at just one single skill that they can do in their backyard so it looks cool because they can do 100 in a row, great. But what happens when... You know, they have to switch hands or they have to change direction or there's a defender on them. I'm like, what the skill acquisition program that you've put together or the environment that you've created is not going to have a transfer because there's, there's, it's just simply not going to work. It's like shooting feet. It's like shooting, um, you know, free throws all day, but you never play basketball. It's like, well, are you going to be a free throw specialist? Right. Like you can't just go in and take free throws. Like it doesn't work that way. So I, I just feel like the, one of the biggest issues with, with all of this stuff with, with skill acquisition and practices, people don't even understand how we learn to begin with. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. Well, Michael, I, I'm, I'm sure at some point you should either have him on his show or you might know who Dan Gray is. Dan Gray is a professor out of, University, out of Arizona. He's doing consulting work now. And his understanding of, of creating constraints and, and putting athletes in the environment in, in which they will play from a learning standpoint is really, really good. I've had the opportunity to talk to him many times about, I call it the landscape, okay, the distance between the pitcher's mound and, and home plate, and, and how building that into your training for hitters in particular is, is so important. But yeah, to your point, I call that the holistic way of building athletes, right, and, and, and realizing that getting better at a particular drill or skill set it, it does not work but the but the problem is it sells 
parents are dumbasses. They don't know any better. My, my kid's getting better at, at the rebounder. And then they curse the trainer when he gets lost or really has no skill set once the game starts. But that gets back to just education. And hopefully the, the trainers and the coaches and, and, and people are getting better because there is such great information that's out there. You know, to the young trainers that are listening to this, sift through it because you heard it on a podcast doesn't mean it's real. OK, use some common sense. And, and at some point, how do you apply it to the existing knowledge base that you have? That's what the master teachers do. Okay, take information. Great. Filter it full of shit. Doesn't make any sense. I can now integrate that into the world that I live in now. And do you have results? I, I think that's really what it comes down to. But it, it that, that exists. It's good to hear that that same challenge exists in lacrosse because it is so rampant in baseball and, and, and softball. Every like, sport, every this, sport, this, this isolation and, and thinking that your son or daughter is getting better. But that's driven by dollars. Because a parent is. who sees that is going to spend more money getting them to be better at the skill. And, and the well-intended, not even well-intended, the trainer or the coach will keep saying, needs, needs to come back for more. Got to come back for more. Of course they do. Keep spending more money. Keep the ladders and cones going. And then after a year and a half of little Johnny not getting better or an Eric situation, yeah, he got great glutes, but, but, but the, the rest of his body doesn't work efficiently <laughs> together. The parents realize I, I better go to plan B and find somebody who really understands the whole picture here. You're just talking about Eric right there. He's got great glutes, but the rest of the body doesn't function well at all. So <laughs> the story of my life. That's what, that's what helped me back. Yeah. <laughs> I, fill out a, I could fill out some baseball pants, like, like nobody's business though. Um, <laughs> so we could go all day with this, but uh, I want to I want to kind of end in, in uh, talking about some of the things that you're working on now, Tony, moving forward. I know you have a top secret project with uh, uh, some key people, maybe who might be on this podcast with you. But um, talk about some other stuff that we got going on for, for 2023 um, and beyond. Let, let me think. Um, I'm still trying to be a good dad. Right. I, I, I'm so proud of my daughter who who's in her second draft season with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, my son, it's a full-time job, just keeping Anthony moving in the right direction. I got to throw batting practice probably in, in about 20 minutes. He gets pissed off when I don't throw strikes, but I tell him, and in real games, you don't get mommy balls, right? And we have discussions about space. Dad, I don't want to hear about space anymore. And I keep beating him up saying that <laughs> when, when the game starts, you're going to need to be a good space rider in this thing. Um, I'm excited about... Uh, I think LSU winning a national championship over the last two days, there's been some people who have said, wow, if the best hitting team in the country is doing this, we should at least kick the tires and, and see what's going on. And Eric and Michael, you, you guys know this, right? People, I'll get calls and Tony, just give me one drill. You just give me in, in 30 seconds, we really can't afford to have you here, but just give me one thing that you know, just give me one thing that's going to change my program around. Okay, well, for $39.95, you can buy my book, but the book is more about concepts and an understanding, right? And I wish I was so good that I can just go like this and, and solve all the problems of the world. But I, I'm really looking forward to having other college baseball programs um, start understanding about this space thing, because in the baseball softball world, it's been soft focus, fine focus. They're so behind in what's really going on. Um, I'm going to find a major league team. It, it, it's been my 
my journey. Not that I really want a full-time job. I'm very happy being the owner of Frozen Ropes and being a proud dad and blah, blah, blah. I, I just like screwing around with, with major league teams <laughs> and going in there and trying to blow up silos. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. So I'm, I'm, I'm having discussions with some of them now. So Tony, like, what are you? Are you a hitting coach? Are you a speed coach? No, I, I, I just fix things. It, it gets back to what do you need to an extent? And I, I think there's, it, it's so in need of having people like you and, and Eric that are out there just simply taking in information, the more traditional programs are going to be looking for some private sector help. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what goes on there. I'm, I'm writing a second book. I'm having nothing to do with baseball. It's really going to be about open focus and space and its application to real world issues like anxiety and ADH situations. We've got a generation of kids, Eric, that are growing up now that because of COVID or whatever else, um, have all kinds of self-esteem and 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 vision problems. You talk about a generation that's slam crammed and jammed on this phone. The eyes and the brains were not meant to be sitting two two inches away from a screen all day, right? Not only do, are we having a a multitude of more children, young children, having being short sightedness, having vision problems, but as as Dr. Femi has taught me. Right. The more you take space away and the more you live in a closed focus world, anxiety levels going up. I want to be able to help more children understand this, this, this simple yet complex concept of just go play in space, go outside and be in space. There's a reason why children and adults love being outside because you're in three dimensional neuronal space and the brain loves it. So th that's the projects that are coming up. And besides every once in a while, getting a chance to learn from people like yourself and Michael, that's my job. Awesome. Love it. And, and, and can't tell you how much we uh, appreciate your work and, and, and taking your time with us. And, uh, and Mike, thank you for, for joining us for another great, great show to add to the list. And thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you, Eric. Michael, stay in good space. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.